hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 44 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Nina Mullen, the co-founder and co-CEO of Hilma. Whether you're seeking relief for a headache, upset stomach, or needing immune support, Hilma is on a mission to create a new standard for your medicine cabinet. After two years of research, assembling a world-class team of scientists, and kicking off three clinical studies, Hilma makes natural remedies that are scientifically backed. In this episode, Nina shares with us her journey from dreams of becoming a wedding dress designer as a kid, to interning at Theory, to working at Harry's where she helped with their first retail launch, to taking the leap into entrepreneurship, launching Hilma in 2019 with her two close friends, Lily and Hillary. She talks with us about how a vitamin C packet sparked the idea for Hilma, how the name Hilma was born, and shares some great insights about what kind of metrics retailers look for. Tune in to hear all of this and more. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us an awesome review. We hope you enjoy this episode. Nina, thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm really excited to hear your story in building Hilma. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Lee. I'm very excited to be here. I'm a big fan of the podcast. So thank you. Excited for the conversation. Awesome. So as you probably know, we start from the very beginning. Let's talk about your childhood. Where are you from originally? I am from Connecticut in a suburb of New York um, and grew up there my entire life. My parents still live there. Nice. Are you still there now? No, I live in Brooklyn. Um, Hilma's based here in non-COVID times, um, but I've been holding down the fort and the team is kind of doing the remote thing a little bit sprinkled around the country right now. Cool. So what kind of kid were you? What did you want to be when you grew up? So great question. In my fourth grade yearbook, um, I, it's a kind of an infamous thing in my family that I wrote down. I wanted to be a wedding dress designer like Vera Wang, which was very specific. For, <laughs> I don't even um, think I knew who that was. <laughs> so that I, I think I had poured over a few too many Vogue magazines. Uh-huh. Um, so I was very into fashion and design as a kid. I was also a total bookworm. Um, and, and I think I always knew I wanted to be in business of some kind and had various entrepreneurial endeavors as a child. Um, but I would say design and and fashion were two of my big interests growing up. And how did those interests come about? Were you inspired, I guess, by the magazines you were reading at the time? 
I think that I always had a very commercial sense as a child. I, I love, well, first off, I loved clothes. Um, always have. I, it's just, it's hysterical because my sister and I could not be more different in that regard. Um, but I, I was the one in all the family photos showing up to family events, impeccably dressed while all of my cousins were kind of wearing kids clothes. (laughs) Um, but I, I don't know why that happened. It just kind of did. Um, but I think I, I, I always wanted to sell things to people. Like that was a big theme growing up. Like it started off with lemonade stands. I then worked retail and I was actually paid under the table before I was legally able to work, but I begged a shop owner in my town to let me start working at age 14 um, instead of 16 because I just wanted to have a job. Um, So I think it just kind of was all of those things in combination and then like the glamour of. So it wasn't about wanting to have a job at 14. I was kind of the same way. I wanted to work as soon as possible. And I think I got a working permit or something at 14 with my parents' signature to said I could work. What is it do you think about your upbringing that made you want to work hard so early? I think that I loved the, I loved the, the sense of personal achievement from kind of doing something for myself. Um, and I loved working with people and interact. I I was, I was, I was a very like precocious child in that I was never afraid of adults in a, in some ways others. I remember like my peers growing up were always kind of afraid to have conversations with other people's parents or teachers and things like that. But I was always very interested in kind of talking to them and, and understanding what people were interested in and, and wanted and were looking for. And I think that kind of like that combined with the fact that I had a sense of personal achievement when I was working and I had done, you know, little entrepreneurial things, like I mentioned, like a lemonade stand and things like that, where I got that buzz of being like, Oh, I'm giving people what they want. And I'm interacting with customers and I'm getting that feedback. Um, And I think very early, I just realized like, this is something I could do and I could get paid for it, which was Mm -hmm. added benefit. Yeah. Were you an older or younger than your sister? I am the youngest child. I'm one of two. Okay. So do you think maybe you were around like, you know, older people because you're your older sibling at all? Do you think that and how did it how did being the youngest influence you? Well, it certainly influenced me in that I never wanted to do what my sister did. Um, Why is that? They're supposed to blaze the trail for you. You know? Well, she did. I we're very close. Um, yeah. so she will she will not mind me saying this, but she is so brilliant and so good at everything that she chooses to do that I didn't want to compete with her. I was not competitive with my sister, and actually, that yeah. was a really defining thing for me. And so, my sister, who was really, you know, she was a she was actually a great athlete. She was brilliant um, at school from a very young age. And, um, she kind of applied herself in poetry and math and like a lot of different, um, interests that she had. And so I kind of just chose different things. I was not athletic and I, I was good at school, but I didn't choose the kind of areas, the same areas to focus on that she did. Um, and I think that the, the working thing actually is another way that I differentiated myself from her is that she was doing all of her sports on the weekends. And I was like, I'm going to 
go make money and sell things to people. <laughs> That's funny. What about your parents? What did they do? Both my parents are doctors. Okay. So did you ever think you might want to be a doctor? You know, the thought never even crossed my mind growing up. Um, it, it It is not, my parents did not kind of pressure me or my sister or kind of bring that in. But it's very interesting because it obviously is in some ways related to what I do now at Hilma. Um, you know, they're both doctors, their approach to medicine and caregiving in the home is very much focused on kind of listening to your body and waiting um, before you take anything or kind of overreact to something. And so I grew up with that as like the overarching sense of care um, in the home is like, drink a glass of water, like have a cup of tea, like ginger, mm -hmm. try some ginger tea and whatever else. Um, and so that very much informed my interest later on in, in natural and herbal products. Interesting. Normally, you know, with doctors, you don't really hear that side. That's like, um, yeah. you know, Eastern versus Western medicine. So it's kind of cool. They sounds like they have a bit of a hybrid going on. Definitely. So, you know, with your first couple jobs, you were working in retail. Um, talk to us about, you know, college internships. What other kind of jobs did you have? Yes. So first job in college was on campus. Um, I got a job working for the student run business. Um, and prior, actually the summer prior to college or the summer junior year summer, I had an internship at theory, the women's clothing company. And as I mentioned, I was very into fashion at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was like my dream job. I had found a friend of a friend who worked at theory and just, again, was like, the youngest person working there. Everyone else was in college. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think I made like seven fifty an hour, which was yeah. the, the time. Um, but I learned a lot at that job. Part of what I learned was that I actually wasn't sure that I actually wanted to be in fashion, mm -hmm. but I knew that I wanted to be in business still. And so a freshman year, I kind of was looking at the different clubs and things like that. And I decided, Oh, I should join the student business. Um, which I ended up working at for all four years um, of college. I started off working, you know, again, just the jobs, jobs in the businesses that the student run business ran, which for us was there was like a laundry service for students. There was um, a ticketing service for when there were concerts on campus. And so I would kind of literally sit and work again, kind of retail type jobs and then by the end of my senior year, I was the head of marketing for the student run business. So we had a number of businesses we ran on campus. And that was a really transformational experience, you know, hiring other students, managing other students, choosing what businesses to invest in, what ideas to kind of let go of, mm -hmm. um, because there were only so many resources that we had. And we were, you know, up, we got a stipend from the university, but we had to turn a profit and we had to kind of sustain ourselves as a business. Yeah. And, and then I had internships every summer um, at different businesses. I, I had another internship in fashion. Um, I actually was traveling in India. I lived in India for six months. And during that time, I had an internship um, actually in a humanitarian organization, something totally different. Um, and and um, 
I also had an internship at a corporate communicate crisis communications firm, um, which was totally different as well. So I kind of ran the gamut while I was still in school. Wow. Corporate crisis communication. What were you doing there? Yeah. So I worked for a company called Kext. It's basically corporate PR. Mm -hmm. Um, And they, you know, as an intern, you do whatever they ask you to do. But um, basically, you're assigned to big corporate clients that are going through hard times, whether it be, you know, something came out about they had to go through a product recall and how is the CEO going to talk about that? And how are the board members going to talk about that to the press? And how do you want to, you know, own up to what's going on, but then also think about, you know, how do you change the conversation to what you want to be focused on and what you want to be talking about in the future. And so I would do things like organize hundreds of call transcripts and things like that. But it was really interesting because again, you, it was a, it was a different direction into leadership at, um, at big companies and understanding what types of problems they have and how diverse those problems are. Kind of like a good CEO class, I feel like would be, you know, how to manipulate the conversation. Um, (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So not only bad things, sometimes, sometimes you're talking about how to play up good things too. Exactly. Exactly. Deflect, you know? (laughs) So you were in um, India and then you came back to New York. Um, I also know that you worked at Harry's. Can Mm -hmm. you talk about how you got your gig at Harry's and your experience there and any kind of takeaways? Definitely. Um, So my first job out of college was working at Bain, um, which is a consulting firm. And I ended up working there because I didn't know what I wanted to do. As you, as I kind of told you, I knew I wanted to be in business, um, but I really hadn't picked a lane yet. And I thought that consulting was a great way to get exposure to a lot of different types of businesses, a lot of different industries, and also just gain that quantitative skill set mm-hmm. um, that I felt was really important. Um, and so I worked there for the first three years out of college, and part of the benefit that Bain offers their younger employees, um, excuse me, is that you can take six months off. It's basically like a six month sabbatical and you can go do something uh, else totally different. And so I took advantage of that and um, went to work at Harry's and I got that job because there was two other Bain people who had gone and worked at Harry's. And I thought to myself, this is a beautiful, I still had that eye for design. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, I was thinking, oh, I really want to get closer to consumer. This is a beautiful design oriented company and I can, I can help and do whatever they want me to do. And so I worked there in the very early days for six months. I was there in 2014 and I just loved it. I fell in love with working with all different people. I was working with designers. I was working with finance people. I was, um, helping the the main role that I played there was helping, um, get the target launch off the ground, um, which was Harry's first retail launch. And, um, also just saw the growth of what was once kind of a DTC niche brand really make it in a mainstream environment. And so 
you know, I just absolutely loved like meeting. We had a big meeting with the target buyers. We all went out to breakfast after, and I just ate it up, like loved absolutely every aspect of like being a small fish in the big pond. Um, and, and, and I basically fell in love with startup culture there. And that's what led me in some ways to want to start Hilma. Interesting. And so what is the story to starting Hilma? Yes. So um, I have two amazing co-founders, which are very integral to this story. So I'll just introduce them first. Um, the My co-CEO is Hillary. She is a very close friend of mine from business school. And um, our chief brand officer is Lily, who is a close friend of mine from childhood. And so the idea for Hilma was very organic. We were not kind of, the three of us were not looking to start a business in any way. Um, Lily had a cold one day and kind of was over at my apartment and we were looking through various things that I had that I could give her. And we found a sugary uh, vitamin C packet. And I was like, oh, you could take this. And we both kind of had a moment of being like, isn't this weird that I own this? It is not you know, as I mentioned before, I'm, I'm kind of into the naturopathic side. Um, I've changed over my cosmetics, my personal care, everything in my home um, to really be better for you, natural products. But still, I had this brightly colored sugary packet. And it was just kind of a aha moment. Um, and Hillary, my co-CEO, has an amazing background in the natural product space. And the two of us had always riffed on starting an idea um, in business school together. And we brought the idea to her and we just started kind of the three of us brainstorming about it and thinking, why is it that the medicine cabinet really feels stuck in the past when all of these other consumer categories have leapfrogged towards natural as as being totally mainstream. Um, And that's really where the idea of Helma was born. Hey guys, I want to tell you a little bit about a new report we're launching here at Future Commerce in partnership with Gladly called The New DIY. It's all about the new trend that has emerged around the passion economy and modern consumption, which begins with peer inspiration, continues with product education, and culminates into participation or an online purchase. The report covers how these trends start on social media, the importance of great customer experience across all brands, regardless of industry, and the implications this trend has on retailers. You can get the full report today over at futurecommerce.fm slash the new DIY. That's futurecommerce.fm slash the new DIY. So what happened from there, you guys, what kind of was the one, like who said it first or how did it happen? We were like, are we going to do this? I don't know. Should we do this? You know, like, what was that conversation? That was a many year conversation (laughs) for us. It was, it was not one moment. Um, it, it started off with, okay, you know, we started Googling, you know, a bunch of different brands in the space seeing why is no one else doing this? That was the first question that we needed to answer. Um, this seems like such an obvious idea. Why hasn't anybody else thought of it? What um, is how, the answer to that? How could we be the ones who possibly could have an idea that's, you know, good and unique? Um, and, you know, the answer to that was there are people doing it in pockets of the market, mostly in children's products. 
Um, but no one who's really doing it from like the adult perspective yet. Um, and so, you know, we started answering that question. Then we started thinking, okay, let's just do this for fun on the side. We all had full-time jobs. Um, let's start talking to friends. Let's talk to colleagues who we've worked for in the past and just start to have conversations around like, I'm thinking about this thing. I can't stop thinking about it. You know, what do you think about it? And that really helped both articulate to ourselves what the idea really was, because in the beginning, your idea is very diffuse. It's not, we're creating medicine cabinet staples that are all natural, herbal, and clean label. That was not the way the idea started. It was like, are we creating like a vitamin C product that doesn't have sugar or dyes? Are we tackling, you know, we didn't even know what products we were going to start with. So talking to people and getting advice um, and just hearing how they react to you and engage with you was a very important part of the process. And from there, you know, you're dealing with a former consultant, myself and my co-CEO is a former investment banker. Um, We started making a deck. (laughs) So that was like the next thing for for us, um, which is just, again, forcing you to edit, to consolidate, to focus on what the idea actually is. And with the purpose of essentially, you know, talking to investors down the road. And that's when things started to get more serious. I'm sure there are some spreadsheets somewhere too as well. Yeah. Spreadsheet, 100%. Very early on, we did like an MVP test that was like, we did all this quantitative analysis around. We had like, you know, 50 or 100 people test different iterations of products. And yes, there were spreadsheets. Sometimes there's a, what they call what analysis paralysis. Do you feel like that happened at all? Or did the numbers look good enough that that was actually inspiring? The numbers looked great in terms of the market size and all of that. I mean, we're talking about OTC health. Um, it's anything from vitamin C and, you know, vitamin D to mm-hmm. A Band-Aid. Um, so you, the market size is huge of what where Hilma could potentially be applicable. Um, and and then from the MVP test, the market size was oh, the market size. The um, the response was incredibly encouraging and really catapulted us forward and gave us the confidence we needed to go forward. We didn't so- do we didn't do like beta testing and things like that in terms of like running fake Facebook ads and, and people have done stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I think for us, that's where we felt like that's where analysis paralysis for us would have set in. So you guys were like, we're not going to try to validate this concept in any way. We're just going to run with it because it looks like it'll work. Well, the MVP was what we really used to validate the concept. Um, we didn't validate like the brand or the, or the, uh, the positioning, which is what I, I've heard of a lot of people doing, which for some categories makes a lot of sense. But for us, we always knew that there was an, a certain amount of education that mm-hmm. came with our product category. So we just didn't know what we were going to learn from that. Got it. So you created the MVP. And then what were kind of your metrics for success? Our metrics for success were, did people think the product worked? And did people want to recommend it to their friends and family, which is, uh, you know, the net promoter score, Mm -hmm. um, metric. And so those were really the two core things that we were looking to prove to ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, both of which very much we were able to prove. 
And so you started, I assume, with like a core group of people, friends and family. Mm -hmm. Do you know how many people that you, how many people you guys brought together and um, how long you kind of tested it? 75 people. All right. 75 people. And then over how long of a period were you kind of testing this out? So all of our products are meant to be used in a moment of need, which Mm -hmm. makes it a little bit easier. Um, Of course, you need to wait for someone to actually experience um, a problem in order Mm -hmm. to take the products, which we had to give like like some leeway for. Um, But I would say the whole test took like six weeks. Oh, that's really short. I would just, I thought for sure, like to have some kind of symptoms, depending on the person, they might not feel like they have symptoms for maybe it's like seasonal, right? Like you start to feel cold symptoms, you want to prevent it. So then you take the vitamin C packet or you try this. Yes. So we did time. That was actually part of when we did the test is Mm. we timed it to coincide with that, with September, uh, November it was like the, the border in September and November. Nice. That makes sense. And so how'd you guys come up with the name Hilma? So we had a really tough time naming. Um, we had a million different ideas and ultimately we, what we knew we wanted was something that sounded familiar, but was unique and ownable, meaning very practically, meaning that we could buy the URL um, that we could have the Instagram handle and that the SEO was not a total upward battle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, those are hard criteria to actually have all three of those be true. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were inspired by the artist Hilma off Clint, um, who was having a show at the Guggenheim at the time that we were going through um, our naming process. And, um, we basically just said one day, someone on our branding agency said, what if, what if you named it Hilma? And we were like, ha ha, like we love Hilma off Clint, but you know, moving on. <laughs> um, and then it kind of just kept in everyone's minds and, and, and ultimately we decided to go with the name Hilma and just to build a world around it. And we kind of think of it as you know, like the Zola approach of just choosing a name that sounds interesting and kind of familiar, but it doesn't actually mean anything to anyone. So it sounds like you guys used a branding agency Um, with creating the product and the formula. Which one did you do first? Did you do the branding first? Did you do the product first? Did you both at the same time? How'd you think about it? We did the product first um, because that process was incredibly long for us. Before we left our full-time jobs, we basically tasked ourselves with finding a formula, uh, finding a formulator and finding doctors to partner with us. That was our biggest thing that we wanted to check off to say, doctors are willing to be a part of this brand and to stand behind this brand because we knew that we had the idea from the business perspective, but that credibility and that trust was going to come from them. And so we started there. Um, We started to find those people and put those people in place. And once we had a critical mass, um, which, you know, took around six months to really make sure that we had the right people involved, um, we started formulating the products themselves. And um, we were doing that 
I would say like a good five to six months before we left our jobs, like formulating the products. And then um, as soon as we left our jobs, that's actually when we kicked off the branding. All right. So you kicked off the branding. When did you guys decide to go full time on it? Probably, I would say like a year and a half into like the first inkling of the idea and, um, and leaving our jobs. But really kind of like five or six months of product development. And then you guys are like, all right, we've got the product now. It's time to really run with this full time. And that yeah. was in 2019? Yes. So we are actually at our one year anniversary of being live is this week. And wow. our Congrats. One year anniversary of being full time, the three of us as founders, um, is also this week. <laughs> so we have been at it full time now for two years. All right. So how has it been over the past two years? How has founder life been? Well, as you know, very well, I'm sure, um, ups and downs. Um, but you know, it's, it's been amazing. We're just feel, you know, it's, it's been a tough time to start a business. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, with everything that's going on in the world right now. Um, but we feel so lucky to have first off, like the co-founder relationships that we have are just incredibly important to us. Um, and we all are like very grateful to work with one another. And then our team, um, we have a very small, but mighty team. And that's been just amazing to have and, and nurture, um, throughout the past year. Um, so, you know, it's been good. What were some say. of the expectations you had early on when you first started that you realized weren't true? Um, a lot. We we thought that things would happen on time <laughs> and when we wanted them to happen. Um, and that most certainly is not true. Um, we, you know, our launch was pushed six months. We thought we were going to launch with our clinical studies complete, which was a big part of our strategy and differentiation. We didn't actually launch our clinical studies until eight months after we launched our business. I'm just showing you how far off our timelines mm -hmm. were. Um, so I would say timelines are completely wrong. I would say that um, the things that you think are going to be, be like the biggest successes sometimes aren't. And the things that you were doing just kind of to see if it worked can surprise you. Um, mm. So hidden successes and, and hidden failures, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and it's what you know, were some I, of those, what were some of those hidden failures, actually, you know, the things that you really thought would work. And then all of a sudden, you're just like, wait a minute, that didn't, can you give us some examples? Yeah, so I think that one one good example of this is actually like our target customer. So we, when we first launched Hilma, really thought that our customer was going to be someone who shopped clean labels in other areas of their life. And that in and of itself was enough to target this customer. And so by that, I mean, someone who's buying Mrs. Myers or Daily Harvest or um, a clean skincare brand. And so we started partnering with brands like that. We started targeting people who were buying and shopping those other brands. And what we found is that was not specific enough. There was because of our, because of the health nature of our products, um, our customer was much more interested in herbal already for a specific reason, whether that be 
a, a woman who just went through pregnancy and started noticing the toxicity of the products and what her doctor told her she could and could not take. And therefore now is kind of more interested in living a cleaner life or, mm-hmm. um, you know, someone who's r- really into yoga and has learned about kind of the power of like meditation and yoga and how much that can really affect your body and is now kind of interested in bringing that into other aspects of their life for those are kind of two examples. So I think a really big thing that we kind of misunderstood was the mindset of our target customer. That's interesting. Very interesting. So, um, fundraising, you guys raised $5 million so far. You raised your seed round, I guess, last year. Um, talk to us about what fundraising was like. Yeah. So fundraising, is obviously both really exhilarating in the moment and really challenging. Um, I think for us, we were fortunate in that we were fundraising before we launched. Um, So we were number one, you know, I'm I'm already dreading kind of having to do all of the normal responsibilities that we Mm -hmm. all have. Um, well, to keep the business alive and growing and all of that, while also having to spend a lot of time talking to um, investors and preparing our materials and all of that. I think that's going to be an, a, a whole new challenge. Yeah. But even, even at the time, it felt really hard to manage, okay, I have this work that I actually have to do that is important to Hilma's success today. And then I have to also be thinking like, about tomorrow and, and raising and telling the story and telling the vision. And I think that that, at least for, for us was one of the harder things to manage. Right. Yeah. Managing both the business and raising it's uh, raising can be a full-time job. Um, so were there any naysayers? I'm sure there were some that said, no, um, what were those experiences like? And, um, you know, I guess what didn't they want to believe about you or your business? Um, so I think that, you know, the, there are naysayers who actually, um, ended up investing. So Pete, which was, which is always a fun thing to have happen. Um, but then there, there are naysayers that, um, just, just don't understand what you're trying to do fundamentally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, those are actually usually very interesting conversations because they are pushing your, regardless of whether they choose to invest or not, they're pushing your line of thinking and they are exposing you to what a consumer might think. Um, And so I think viewing an investor as a potential consumer and kind of testing out what, what rationale works with them if I'm trying to convince them um, and how do I bucket this type of person and think about how to use that to my advantage in the future mm-hmm. is kind of the the positive thing that we're able to take away from those experiences. Awesome. Um, and so tell us about one of your most challenging moments, uh, you know, in the past two years of building a business, what was something, you know, that was really tough that you had to overcome? Um, something really tough. Um, I, I mean, I would say that the first few weeks of coronavirus was a pretty big challenge for our country and mm-hmm. world. Um, but it was, it was, it was the first time where I realized, oh my God, we have a, we also, not only do we have to deal with what does this mean for my grandma and 
you know, my family and all this, but it was also, oh my God, we have the responsibility of the fact that we have a team and we have a business and we have shipments. Um, and what does this mean for our capital, our sources of capital and everything else? And so I think that that was a very stressful and challenging time for anyone who has a small business. Um, and for us as first time entrepreneurs, really scary. Um, ultimately, thank God, you know, our products are somewhat relevant. We were well positioned um, to kind of weather the storm of those few weeks of just kind of like blackout yeah. craziness. Um, but that was certainly like one of the scarier moments in running a business. And being a co-CEO is um, kind of unique. I mean, I've heard of it before. Obviously, it exists. But, you know, how did that come about that there would be two CEOs? You know, a lot of times um, investors or just, you know, general, there, it's always kind of this thought that there should only be one CEO, right? So how did you guys kind of have that conversation? And what made you guys kind of decide that you both should be CEO? Yeah. So, you know, we have different backgrounds. Um, we were friends first. Um, and for us, we knew that we were going to want to bring different things to the role and to the business and that we could share in that responsibility. And um, I think, you know, for us, it was never really a thing. Most certainly it is for some investors. There also is a lot of interesting research that's been done on women as co-CEOs and co-founders versus men, which tend to struggle in those types of relationships, whereas women tend to thrive, which is not shocking in my, in my opinion. Um, so it's interesting to also just see those more macro trends as well. Um, but for us, it was always about having clear lines of responsibility. I focus on our product and our retail um, and Hillary, my co-CEO focuses on our direct consumer, like an online channels and our finance. Um, and so we have very clear lines of responsibility and we just work really well together. And to me, I always see it as an asset and a benefit, um, more so than anything else. That's pretty cool. Um, and so with investors, cause I'm, were any investors like, sorry, this is a deal breaker for us, or were they just kind of concerned about it, but it wasn't that big of a deal. How did investors I respond? Even, I wouldn't even say that they were concerned about it. It just, sometimes it came up like people were like, Oh, you have two CEOs. What are, how, what's the division of responsibility? How are you going to make this work? Mm -hmm. It most certainly was never, I mean, there's, there's, there's Harry's actually, it's another example of a company with two male CEOs. Um, and there's, there's a number of others that, yeah. you know, I think have already proven that this can work. Absolutely. And so with retailers, um, and you manage it kind of the retail side, I know you guys have some, um, exciting news coming out probably soon. Um, can you talk to us about how it, what it's like to try to launch in a major retailer and what that process has been and what you did right or wrong or advice you have for any other, you know, products out there, entrepreneurs trying to do something similar? Yeah. So, um, obviously we're taking the page out of the other DTC brands books that came before us. So 
Harry's launching at Target, Lola launching at Walmart. Um, you know, these are brands that have paved the way for kind of niche internet brands mm-hmm. um, to make it at the mainstream. And so we had that in our sites very early on because of our category dynamics. Um, we are a category that the vast majority of consumers, even today, shop in store. Um, and so for us, it was less of, oh, a if, it was really a when. Um, and I think having that in our sites and as part of our focus from day one was really important because as you know, like there's a million different priorities. And if you want to make a true retail launch work, it needs to be a focus. And the lead times are incredibly long. You need to be pitching retailers over a year before you actually are going to want to be on shelf. Um, so it, 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 I would say that's like the biggest thing to, for other people to keep in mind is just how long the lead times are. Whatever you think they are, double it um, in terms of the amount of planning, pre-planning that has to go in. And when do you think is a good phase or, you know, stage of the company to start having those initial conversations? If you know you want to be, you know, in a retailer, you know, in the next year or, you know, what, at what point is it like when you have your product and you want to start sending them samples to start building the relationship, knowing that you won't be in the store very soon. It might be a year from now, but at least you can get the conversation going or is that too soon? Like, when do you think is a good time to start those conversations? Yeah. I mean, I think it all depends on the product and the brand and the team. Um, For us, we wanted to have a little buzz. We wanted to have some exciting metrics to be able to bring to the retailer as kind of, I I don't want to say leverage because (laughs) the retailer has all the leverage (laughs) when you're a small (laughs) brand and, and you have none, but I guess just as like enticing exciting, um, fodder for conversation. Um, so for us, we wanted to have, what that meant was we wanted to have launched. We wanted to have a few months under our belt. We wanted to have some press stories, some influencers, um, and some, and some buzz as a brand, um, to really have a fruitful conversation from that starting point. Um, but for other brands, I mean, there are a bunch of brands that launch with retail, Um, and that can just be, you know what, they have a unique connection to a retailer. Maybe it's someone who worked at a retailer who then is starting their own brand and they're able to kind of go direct. Um, that's awesome for them. Um, we didn't, we, we had that, those connections kind of through past jobs, but it wasn't as tangible as that. I mean, how important do you think it is to kind of build the brand D to C so that you're kind of building some kind of customer base so that once you are in the retail store, you actually get some sales instead of sending your product back to you? You know, what's kind of, I don't know where, how big do you think a company should be before they do that? I mean, you said that they can do it even before they launch, like they actually launch in the retailer. Um, But how do you think about that in terms of like the contrast of launching right away in a retailer versus building your own presence and having some leverage and kind of maybe having your chances be a little bit better? Is that true? Or how do you think about that? Yeah, so I think that it is, it is definitely true that knowing a bit about your customer before you go into a retailer is very valuable. Um, so for us, having our DTC channel and our Amazon channel as well, um, up and running, we have healthy sales through those channels. 
We know who those customers are. We're able to communicate with those customers and get feedback, um, which is really hard to do when you're in retail. So for example, we actually made tweaks to our formulation based on customer insights um, before for our retail launch. So our, our the, the, the products that we're launching at retail are better and more improved and kind of all of that based on the, that feedback. Um, so I think that that can only be an asset. Um, I do think that for smaller brands, while it is true that you might have more awareness than if you had a cold start at retail, the reality is brands are pretty much on small brands are pretty much unknown when they start at retail. The average person shopping at a CVS, a Walgreens, a Target, et cetera, is not going to notice your, know your brand before you walk in. So it really is about how can you put your best foot forward once you're there to get their attention. And I think that's where we felt having that insight and um, ability to tweak product and packaging before that opportunity arises to have that one second in aisle was important for us. And what did you learn about your product and packaging early on that kind of prepared you to have a better presence in the retail store? I mean, everything from big and small things, small things being like, you know, we started off with one type of label that we didn't love the execution of, and it looked kind of different on every single bottle, which is not great for, for retail. You want consistency. Mm -hmm. Um, so we switched kind of the, the type of packaging that we were using. So that's one like really tangible example. Other things on the formula was, you know, we were getting feedback that because we've removed a lot of products, um, a lot of fillers from our products, like sterates, for example, um, our product does not dissolve as easily as other products for our powder product that we have, our vitamin C powder. Um, and so we really worked for like a long time with our formulator to figure out how do we still stay true to our no list, um, but, but improve that. And we ended up tweaking a few of the ingredients so that they're more like using literally different ingredients so that they're slightly more dissolvable, but still have the same effect. Um, so things like that were bigger changes that we made based on feedback. And then um, we're also launching new products at retail um, that we haven't even sold before um, that, again, is based on customer feedback and, and insight. That's awesome. So what's something you wish you would have known before you started your business? Is there anything that you kind of look back and you're like, that would have been nice to know? <laughs> um, you know, I don't think that there's any one thing like mm -hmm. that I wish I would have known, I guess, just like an attitude that I wish I would have had or known is that there are a lot of good moments and there are a lot of bad moments. And both of those moments need to be kept in perspective. Um, not one thing is going to make your business and not one thing is going to break your business. And so I think like the volatility of being a founder, um, especially in your first year, uh, first few years, I'm sure, is just so intense. Um, and so trying to steal yourself off from it a little bit and kind of like stay the steady path is something that I continue to try and remind myself of. You know, growing a business is definitely very much a, a personal growth story as well as a professional one. How have you grown personally as a leader? Um, well, I think, you know, 
I think I have built a lot of resiliency um, in general, like through this experience. I think, you know, we encounter a lot of problems, whether they're manufacturing or, Mm -hmm. you know, something on the site that someone notices or, you know, a million different things. Um, And I think before I used to be like very emotional about a lot of those problems um, because I care and because I am an emotional person. But I think that I have built a lot more resiliency personally. Um, And then, you know, I I view my team, my role as, you know, anything to really help the team and um, giving opportunities. One of the best parts of all of our jobs as founders is giving opportunities to other people um, and seeing them kind of grow and thrive in their roles. Um, And so that's been like a real joy. So how do you think about building resiliency? You know, how have you done it? Or how do you do it? Um, Well, one way to do it is to kind of listen to a pump up song at the end of a really shitty day. (laughs) Um, And just telling yourself to get over yourself and get on with your life. Mm -hmm. Um, And then one is just at bats, right? It's like, okay, you pitch someone, maybe it's a co-manufacturer, maybe it's, honestly, maybe it's like, you know, a friend, you're telling about an idea that you're doing at Hilma, and they say, you know, I don't really think that's a good idea. Like, I don't really get why you're doing it. And a lot of people's first reactions, especially if you're, it's your business, is to say, oh, my God, you know, oh, my God, my father-in-law's package didn't arrive. Like, you know, oh my God, someone found this issue with our packaging. Um, and you just, those at bats of having negative things happen to you just naturally make you stronger over time. And you view them as opportunities, number one, to make a positive interaction, if you can, being like, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that that didn't go well, or this disappointed you in whatever way and make a positive customer interaction out of it. If it's a customer thing. And then if it's a pitching thing, I I kind of mentioned this before, but I really view quote unquote negative pitches, whether it's to an investor, a manufacturer, whoever it might be as opportunities to get better at what you're doing, because you can always get better at selling your vision and your brand. That's awesome. So, and that's very good advice. I mean, before we wrap up here, what other kind of final advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs um, that are listening and tuning in or business operators? Do you have any other final words of wisdom? Um, well, I'm, 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 I'm all ears for words of wisdom for other people. <laughs> anybody has them for me, but um, you know, I think, I think for, one thing that I, that I, that worked for us um, and our founding team is just, I do think that it's worthwhile to work on your idea for as long as you can before committing to it. Um, mostly as a test of commitment to yourself um, because you are forced in those, you know, for us, it was a year and a half of working on this on nights and weekends. You are forced to give up social commitments let people down, <laughs> you know, who are you're close to who might have wanted you to be somewhere or do something because you're working. And I think that that 
is number one important to test yourself to see like how much do I really care about this? But also it's honestly like a, a lens into the future of like what you need to be willing to do. Um, and I don't think it is for everyone. So I think that that's important. And then I guess the other thing would just be to get advice of people from people who scare you, like the people who are negative, who kind of make you feel defensive, who, you know, you know, might be skeptical of your idea because of something that they've encountered. Talk to that person and like be asked those hard questions because someone else is going to ask them to you. Right. Um, and it's really important, like preparation. So when you say work on your idea and what specific ways would you recommend working on that idea? Well, I think for us, um, we had very specific milestones that we were looking to achieve. One was we wanted to do a competitive first to start it off being like a competitive analysis. Like, is anybody else doing this idea? Uh, that is, it sounds silly to say start there, but honestly, like you, you see brands being started where you wonder to yourself, did they know that this other brand was doing this same thing when right. they started this idea? So like really spending time because competitors, as you know, in the age of DTC, there's a million brands out there and it's actually not always the most easy thing to do to, you know, you're not just walking the shelves of a CVS and seeing what brands are there, you're really having to dig into like the deep interweb to like figure yeah. out who's doing what. So the competitive landscape, I think is very important. I think the testing of like the product concept for us, that was our MVP, as well as we did like focus groups, focus groups and customer interviews. And then those two things together can help you create a deck that you start using to have those pitch conversations. First, you're pitching to friends and family, some of which, or former colleagues, et cetera, some of which need to be the scary people. And then you start stepping up to like the friend of a friend who's a VC and you're kind of saying, oh, it's a casual conversation. Like it's a softball conversation, but really like you're prepared for that conversation and you're viewing that as a real opportunity for yourself. Um, and so I think those, that's kind of the progression. Awesome. That's really helpful. Like a little bit of a the milestones kind of framework there for working through ideas. Um, you know, what's your grand vision for the future? What's next for Hilma? We, you know, we want Hilma to be a household brand name. You know, I go back to the original vision for the brand is, you know, we see brands like Mrs. Myers and Seventh Generation that we like so look up to mm -hmm. at Hilma in terms of what they've done for the clean label movement. And we see um, Hilma as being that, but for the medicine cabinet. Um, and so, you know, we hope there's a Hilma, a place for a Hilma in everyone's house um, at one day in the future. And um, whether that be through retail, however you found us, we want to kind of be there to support you. Awesome. Well, Nina, thank you so much for being on the show today and sharing your story and your advice and insights and starting your business. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you. It was great to chat, Lee. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.